public health in the Delaware River Basin and beyond. DamascusCitizens.org This is Rosie Starr for Radio Catskill. Welcome to Farm and Country, locally produced radio about rural life in the Catskills and the Delaware River Valley. On today's show, supermassive black holes are the subject of Keith Hubbard's Star Talk report. Stephanie Phillips continues her conversation with naturalist Marty Borko. In this segment, now you know, they'll discuss observing plants and animals on hikes. Sweetwater fishing guide Evan Padua reminds us to be respectful of the river. Dick Risling and Sonia Headland from Applepawn Farm share a bit of their reasons why they farm. All of that coming up on today's Farm and Country, but first, news headlines from NPR. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. President Biden has signed the bipartisan gun safety bill into law following two high-profile mass shootings in New York and Texas. NPR's Amy Held reports on the biggest gun legislation breakthrough in decades. The law invests more than a billion dollars into school safety and mental health provisions. It expands limitations for those convicted of domestic abuse and enhances background checks for young buyers. President Biden says it will keep guns out of the hands of those who pose a danger. Well, this bill doesn't do everything I want. It does include actions I've long called for that are going to save lives. The legislation does not address the military-style rifles designed to kill many people quickly that two 18-year-old suspects legally bought to shoot dead 31 people at school in Texas and at a grocery store in New York last month. Amy Held, NPR News. Several states are taking action to end abortion after Friday's Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. NPR's Debbie Elliott reports Republican-controlled legislatures had already banned abortion or passed so-called trigger laws in anticipation. The Supreme Court's decision set off a flurry of activity in southern states with abortion bans, prompting providers in the region to stop performing abortions. Alabama Attorney General Steve Marshall is moving to lift a federal court injunction on one of the most stringent bans in the country, with no exceptions for rape or incest. Louisiana Attorney General Jeff Landry says a trigger ban is now in effect, and there's a law signed earlier this week by Louisiana's Democratic Governor John Bell Edwards that that criminalizes all abortion at the moment of fertilization. In Arkansas, Attorney General Leslie Rutledge is certifying that Roe is overturned, a requirement to implement that state's trigger law. Debbie Elliott, NPR News. Friday's Supreme Court decisions let states decide whether to allow access to abortion. That means things will not change in places like California, which is poised to expand access to women from out of state. Reporter Nicole Nixon has more. Democratic state lawmakers in California have been preparing for this moment. Tony Atkins is president pro tem of the state Senate. She had a message for people in states where abortion is now illegal or heavily restricted. We are here for you, and and I know that the providers are going to do everything in their power to see that you get the assistance you need. California expects an influx of travelers seeking abortions and is considering bills to expand access to meet demand. 
They include a public-private abortion fund and an amendment to enshrine the right to an abortion in the California Constitution. If approved in a final vote next week, that amendment will go before voters in November. For NPR News, I'm Nicole Nixon. This is NPR News. This is Rosie Starr. Welcome back to Farm and Country. Coming up on today's show, Stephanie Phillips continues her conversation with naturalist Marty Borco. In this segment, Now You Know, they'll discuss observing plants and animals on hikes. Sweetwater fishing guide Evan Padua reminds us to be respectful of the river. Dick Reisling and Sonia Hedlund from Applepawn Farm share a bit of their reasons why they farm. But first, here is Keith Hubbard with this week's Star Talk report. Thank you for joining us on Radio Catskill for this week's locally produced Farming Country. Farm and Country, I'm Keith Hubbard, and this is Star Talk. Supermassive black holes are thought to lurk at the center of most, if not all, large galaxies. They are millions of times the mass of the Sun, but are only tens of times the diameter of the Sun. An object this dense and this small exerts such an enormous gravitational pull that not even light can escape its grasp. Because light cannot escape black holes, they remain invisible to us. It is not fully understood how supermassive black holes form. Some astronomers have theorized that they form out of the collapse of massive clouds of gas and dust during the formation of the galaxy. Others postulate that supermassive black holes are the result of stellar black holes consuming large amounts of material over millions of years. Another idea is that a cluster of stellar black holes merges into a supermassive black hole. At the center of our Milky Way galaxy lies a supermassive black hole that is four million times as massive as the Sun. The supermassive black hole is known as Sagittarius A star. To look toward the galactic center, find the constellation Sagittarius. Sagittarius is a large constellation that is hard to see, but its asterism, the teapot, is small and easy to spot. The teapot has a handle, spout, and even steam rising from the spout. The steam is the band of the Milky Way arcing across the sky. Look for Sagittarius and the teapot low in the southern sky around 10 p.m. this week. If you have any questions, comments, or ideas for future Star Talk segments, my email address is startalk at farmingcountry.org. For Farming Country and Star Talk, this has been Keith Hubbard reminding you to keep looking up. Stephanie Phillips with Now You Know for Farm and Country. I've invited Marty Borco to describe what we are likely to see when we're strolling through the woods in the late spring and early summer. 
Marty, I understand that you lead hikes in the Bashakil. Where else do you lead hikes? Well, I lead hikes now in central New York, where I'm living around Waverly. I belong to an organization called the Karantuan Greenway, and we have two land holdings, and we maintain the trails on those two holdings, mile and a half of trail on one and a short half-mile trail on the other to a, an Indian spring. We also maintain those trails to try to keep the vegetation low, to reduce the tick population, to reduce uh, Lyme disease probabilities. I lead trips out there fairly regularly. I lead trips on ferns, trips on flowers, trips on identifying trees from their bark, tree form, things of that sort. Anybody has a natural history topic that they would like to review, I'd be glad to at any time lead that group. We lead the scouts, things of that sort, any group that wants to, home educators on occasion. I'm game basically to go to anybody's property and take them out and walk them in the woods and kind of show them what they really have around them. Suppose we do go hiking in the woods. We're in June at the moment. What, what are we going to see? Are there any flowers left? Well, we have our shad bush just finishing up right now, and we have our cherries, choke cherries and sweet cherries and any pears out there and any apples, which are introductions. They're all introductions. They're the dominant flowers. Marty, can you describe them in case we don't know what they look like so we know what we're seeing? Sure. The uh, Both the pears and the apples and the cherries, for that matter, they all have a five-parted flower. So you see five fairly obvious usually white, but sometimes they have a pinkish tend to it, flower. The nice thing about the flowering of these trees is that this is where the warblers are now. They like to go in. The insects are attracted and the, the birds are in there feeding in those flowers of those trees. But the first tree to really bloom in the area are the shad bush, which are finishing up right now. I don't know what those look like. Oh, the shad bush tree is a tree that has a very silvery, tight, smooth bark, and it doesn't get to be large. It would be a middle-sized tree. They're very common along waterways in particular. It's called the shad bush because in the Delaware River, we have a shad run. And the shad run at the same time that the shad bush is in bloom. The shad run should be finishing up now. I just looked at the local paper, the, the Middletown Record, and saw that it's atrocious. There's, there's no record anymore. It used to depend on that paper, but I don't know what's happening with it right now. You'll have to listen to Hooked on Fishing, which we broadcast on Farm and Country. There's some domestic plants that seem to do well in the wild. You mentioned apples. I see foxgloves out there and daffodils. Why are they successful in the wild while other plants aren't? Well, that's a characteristic of what we would consider a sort of weedy species. Some species are simply more tolerant of variable conditions and they also have the capability of continued reproduction or maintenance of their population. We call those in general exotics. Uh, we're not really happy with a lot of the exotics because if Wildwood, where I usually walk every morning, the herbaceous layer is garlic mustard. Uh, garlic mustard is, is a weed. I hate that stuff. A weed, again, is something by definition, something you don't want where it's growing. If it weren't for the garlic mustard, you just look at the forest floor. The forest floor is green with garlic mustard in there, four parted white flowers all over the place. And then if you look up in the middle layer, the shrub layer, the shrub layer is Japanese honeysuckle. Again, if it wasn't for the honeysuckle, we probably wouldn't have much. We wouldn't have much dogwoods. We wouldn't have much viburnums. So that the honeysuckles have dominated. 
And speaking of plants that I don't like, we have these blackberries, these wild blackberries all over the place with stickles. Is that something new, or will they always have been there? No, well, we've always had rubus is, is a big uh, genus. Blackberries and raspberries all belong to that same uh, genus, and quite often a botanist won't even tell you what species it is. He'll just tell you it's a rubus. But we have many different kinds, many of which are native, many of which are probably introduced. They provide good food for wildlife, the uh, different berries out there. It's, it's an intermediate good bottom layer. And then there are species that we've introduced, people have introduced, like turkeys and eagles. Do they have a significant impact on the ecology of our woods? Well, we didn't uh, introduce the eagles. Eagles were here. <laughs> well, uh, eagles, maybe a few. Eagles were native to the United States, the 48 lower states. And what happened to the eagles, of course, was that chemical companies developed DDT during the war and sprayed all of our servicemen with DDT so they wouldn't get bites and infections. And then they sold the DDT to whoever wanted to use the DDT. And the effect of DDT on birds, in particular predatory birds that would feed on lower levels of game, such as the bald eagle or the osprey, they would feed on fish that had eaten smaller fish, and the DDT had accumulated. And in the case of the eagle, they would eat roadkill or eat rabbits or whatever it is, and they would all accumulate the DDT, build up levels in their bodies, in their carcasses. The eagle would eat them, and the DDT levels would be raised into the eagles and the ospreys and the peregrine falcons. And as a result of that, their populations went way down. When we discovered that that's what was happening and they banned DDT, that turned around in 19, uh, let's see, 1963, 1962. I was out uh, with a class at Cornell University in Western New York at what is called Honey Oil Lake. It's the most western of the Finger Lakes, small lake. But that was the last surviving pair of bald eagles that were trying to nest. And they were not successful because they would lay an egg and the eggshell wouldn't develop. It was just a thin membrane. The membrane would crack in the nest. And the state was just beginning to try to solve that problem. I wrote a paper, I think it was in 72, in the Kingbird, the state publication about the bald eagle wintering population in Sullivan County, Rio and Mongop area, where I studied the Christmas count data from the bulletins. And I stated in that paper that we had in Sullivan County the highest wintering population of bald eagles in northeast United States. And soon after that, Peter Nye went to College of St. Rose on a master's degree program, working with the DEC basically to work on that population of bald eagles. And then after that, Peter Nye developed what we call the hacking program. He went out and took bald eagles from Wisconsin, Minnesota, and then later Alaska, and reintroduced them into the state of New York. And since then, the eagles have been very successful. It's frustrating to me because in the last couple of weeks, I was without with two different birding organizations and mentioned the name Peter Nye, and nobody ever heard of him. And here was an individual who really not for Peter and his research and his work in hacking, we probably wouldn't have the population that we do. Do you think that they make a difference in the number of mice and rabbits, and are there enough of them to matter to the small mammals in our woods? No, the eagles are not affecting our population of rodents at all. 
<laughs> the interesting situation of rodents, the one big issue that we have with them, and that's the most common rodent in the woodland, is what we call the white-footed mouse, Paramiscus leucopus. Paramiscus is the host of Lyme disease, the bacteria that causes Lyme disease. And then the deer also get involved in the cycle. The deer are a good food source to get many protein for the ticks so they can have lots of eggs when the tick lays eggs. The population control of rodents really is dependent upon climatic conditions. It's dependent upon the amount of food that's available to them and to the things like a sharp-shinned hawk and a fox. They would be the major predators of a white-footed mouse because white-footed mice are active in the evening. They're not active in the day. In the meadows, we have the meadow mouse, which is active in daylight. But if you're talking about the white-footed mouse in the woods, then that's only active really at night. So the eagle are going to be more interested in fish and, as I know, chickens. Well, not really chickens. They're not a chicken. The chicken hawk expression usually relates to the sharp chin hawk and the cooper's hawk, which like to fly through the trees, very agile birds. And my son has about 30 chickens that he lets out all the time, doesn't even lock them in, and really hasn't had any major problem with the hawks and foxes and things, even though he's got, you know, he's in the woods with 40 acres. We all have our prejudices, but the eagle really is a fish-eating bird, and that's why they're doing so well in the state now along rivers like the Neversink River and the Susquehanna River and uh, the Delaware in particular. That's really rich habitat, good fishing. What about domestic pets like cats and dogs? What impact do they have on our woods? Because they roam around all the time up here. Yeah. Uh, Dogs really are less of a problem. The dogs don't have the agility that a fox would have or the hunting skills that a fox would have. But cats are a different story. Cats are are mavericks. There are many instances, for instance, on islands where, let's say, the lighthouse keeper had a cat and the cat would destroy every little animal that was on the island before the lightkeeper left. So cats are devastating. They like to hunt. They don't like to eat necessarily. They just like to kill. It's just a challenge seemingly to them to find something that's moving and see what it's going to do when they play with it. So cats can be a problem for wildlife. So now you know a bit about the plants and animals you may see in the underbrush and middle layers of our woodlands. Our expert naturalist and hike leader today has been Marty Borco. And this has been Stephanie Phillips for Farm and Country. Radio Catskill and Farm and Country, this is Evan Padua, bringing you Hooked on Fishing. I'd like to remind everyone to help keep our river clean. Please refrain from dumping any household garbage, tires, or any river trash in or around the river. Please deposit trash in proper receptacles accordingly. The river is no place to deposit trash. Also refrain from using any glass bottles in or around the river. A broken glass bottle is nearly impossible to clean up. 
The rivers and nature's beauty needs to be preserved as best we can in our modern world. Please be part of the solution and not the problem. For Radio Catskill, Farm and Country, and Hooked on Fishing, this has been Evan Padua. Casting off. Here is Dick Reisling and Sonia Hedlund from Apple Pond Farm expressing a bit of why they farm. Hello, everybody. This is Dick Reisling. From your wonderful question to start this interview, why do you farm? I farm because I want to find out how things really work. What is a better approximation of the truth? Just an approximation, because truth is never the truth. It's our best guess, and there's a thousand, a million guessers. If we would just learn to put it all together, we might actually come to some better understanding that we have now. But for the moment, and there's not many moments left... I think for the human species, in my own mind, maybe 200 years or so, and then we'll be gone. I hope so. So the earth has a more gentle and more loving and a more understanding and more steward, uh, better stewards of, of her magnificence is that we need to come up with a very different understanding of our connection and our role in nature. I believe we have a major problem. The major problem above all problems is that we profoundly misunderstand our role with nature. And I thought, well, farming, there's something we're really good at. Oh, no. We were, but we're not. This is the time when bigger is better and all that kind of thing. And that's a notion that's totally anathema to, to nature. Nature is majestic and grand and universal, but it is, it's so specific, it's so minute. You can hold in your hand a billion parts of a billion different organisms that all together became me. And they are part of my body inside. And so that means I'm a part of them. And there's all these stories out there. So I became a farmer because I wanted to learn. And the main thing is I felt better. I really felt better. I felt I was really in connection with a lot of things. And then it all got summed up. Uh, Mr. Jefferson, who I always loved, Thomas Jefferson, he said, you know, agriculture, among other things, is the noblest of all professions. Well, I don't know about that so much because I know a lot of farmers and I know a little bit about myself and I don't think I qualify. But then the second half of that same sentence, which we don't get printed much, but above all, it's the most humorous. It is fun. Yeah, not always fun. It's Your curiosity is always stimulated. You're never filled up. But there's always sufficiency in every encounter with nature that's good and positive. And it's on the path toward truth for the human being. I mean, what gives us meaning and what gives us pleasure and one gives us guidance. So farming, I think, makes every person a better person. So whether it's democracy, 
whether it's loving, whether it's giving care, whether it's learning, and a whole bunch of other things, or having fun, or just the magnificent beauty of the earth, and especially where you and I live, you can't beat it. Farming is just the place to be. This is Sonia Headland. We've done a great deal of entertaining at Apple Pond Farm for brunch or meals. I'm comfortable with people coming to visit us. So when we started this farm, rundown as it was, we were determined to make it open for people. And at that time, there really weren't farmers who wanted to do that. Unfortunately, some people are not talkers. They're not, they don't want to be open to the public, but I'm different. I really love it. The horsework here was wonderful. Dick is a great teamster and a trainer and has probably taught 100 or 200 people how to use horses for driving and doing farm work. Gifts have done wonderful things to me. Um, an old boyfriend gave me a border collie. A teacher gave me her goat because she had had an accident. Someone found a sheep that needed to be taken care of. So I got these animals and I began to learn how to care for them as a novice. And people around here were very helpful. I find farming engaging because of all the skills I have to have. You know, if you're an accountant, you have to know all your figures in the tax law. To be a successful farmer, you have to know weather. You have to know carpentry, some plumbing, absolutely veterinary science, a bit about soil and organic farming. You have to know not only to make a product good, a beautiful horse, a good lamb, you have to know how to sell it. And often that's the glitch here. You have all these good things, but what do you do with them? If you're in farming, the idea is to make some money. It isn't just to do things for a hobby. We've had some good programs here. One of the most successful, beside the workshops on renewable energy and on uh, driving draft horses, was Farming with Kids. And we have run that program maybe for 20 years on Saturday mornings. People come with their children, and we do something. The big hit of that was always milking goats, and I really like goats. They're not for everyone. They're very smart, and if they can, they'll figure a way to get out of their paddock or pasture. I learned to make cheese. I did programs called A Lot of Ricotta and taught people how to make cheese at home. And then we did some special programs about spinning and weaving so those kind of educational opportunities were a challenge to me and very satisfying. Getting started in farming can be an expensive operation if you don't have land in your family. But if you want to grow vegetables, the truth is you don't need a big piece of land. No one is going to start a cow dairy farm, maybe some cheese operations. I think people who are interested in farming should be sure they really feel both an intellectual and emotional commitment to it. And you're considered a young farmer by Cornell for the first 10 years of your operation. So it takes, it does take a while. This is the Delaware River Valley. This is not the Hudson River Valley. I don't look to the east at all. That is another world. I want us to be the Delaware River Valley. That was Dick Reisling and Sonia Hedlund from Apple Pond Farm expressing a bit of why they farm. 
This interview is part of the audio that you'll hear in October for the project Why I Farm. Why I Farm is an audiovisual collaboration with production by digital artist Pat Carullo, photographer Woody Goldberg, and myself, Rosie Starr, radio producer. It is planned for viewing in October inside the Digital Gallery at the Union in Narrowsburg, New York. We hope that you enjoyed our show this week with production by Radio Catskill volunteers Keith Hubbard, Stephanie Phillips, Evan Padua, Dick Reisling, and Sonia Hedlund. Special thanks goes to our guest, naturalist Marty Borco from the Bashakil Environmental Center. This has been your host, Rosie Starr. Thanks for listening to Farming Country on Radio Catskill, public radio for the Catskills and Northeast Pennsylvania. Support for Farm and Country comes from Damascus Citizens for Sustainability, a community-supported, science-based nonprofit taking legal actions, providing tools for action, and raising awareness of fracking damage since 2008, proactively protecting public health in the Delaware River Basin and beyond. DamascusCitizens.org If you hear good music, you're listening to Radio Catskill. Clyde Alvin Yates III sets it off Saturday night at 7. At 9, an hour of global sounds on Afropop. Then at 10, Selector Starkey and DJ Chuck spend four hours of funk, hip-hop, and more on Old School Sessions. Saturday night, only on Radio Catskill. Let me borrow it. No, my brother. You, you, you got to buy your own. Buy your own. Buy your own. Hi, I'm Manoush Zamarodi, and each week on NPR's TED Radio Hour,